0: Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's opening episode, we're going to talk about the one metaphor that the Bible uses more than any other to describe the Christian life. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Uh, It's good to see everybody here in the room. It's always heartening when somebody shows up. Uh... (laughs) I'm excited about this class. I've been looking forward to it for some time. Just so you know where we're going on this, my goal for the time we spend is is to take 16 sessions and communicate to you as clearly as I can uh, the fundamental practicalities that I've learned about the Christian life in the last 16 years as a Christian addict in recovery. So if you know an addict or love an addict, if you're trying to understand an addict, or if you've ever had uh, a problem yourself, found it impossible to break a bad habit or build a new one, then I think you're going to find the subjects we cover here enlightening and, uh, and helpful. So uh, putting this class together is one of my 10 goals for the year. I'm not usually a goal-oriented person. I'm not a goal-maker, never done that before. But I'm experimenting with it this year. I bought Mike Hyatt's Best Year Ever program and uh, did the worksheets, watched the videos. I'm, I'm going to see how this works, actually, having goals. One exercise was to write 10 goals for the year. I wrote them the first time. And, and when I looked him over, I realized got kind of this sinking feeling when I did that all my goals, that first list of goals, were were work-related or achievement oriented. And I'm smart enough to know that, that um, that's not really balanced. So after thinking about it, praying about it a little, I went back and revised the list, took a few things off, added A few things. I added, for example, uh, as a goal for the year, I want to take my whole family, kids, grandkids, significant others, everybody, to a big cabin in the Smokies for a long weekend and a day at Dollywood. Uh, It's the kind of thing we've never done. We never will do if it doesn't get planned. And as fast as these kids are growing up, if I don't do it soon, it'll be too late. So. It's on the list. It's on the calendar for this year. Uh, Another thing I put on the list as a goal for the year is to take Allie on a great vacation. Now we travel a lot together. She travels with me often when I go to speak. But that doesn't really count as as vacation. I mean we enjoy ourselves, but there's always work and there's always ministry. And it's been a while since we got together, just the two of us on vacation. So I'm at the point now where I'm trying to figure out, you know, where we're gonna go. If you guys, any of you, if you follow Ali on Facebook, you know that in the last week she has reposted some blogs that she wrote back in 2009. uh, During a trip that we took to England, I'd been invited to speak at a Christian music festival in Ireland. We decided as long as somebody else had paid to get us across the pond, we'd stay a couple of weeks. So we had one night in Amsterdam, and then two weeks in England. We spent the first week in London. I'd rented a flat on the east bank of the Thames. And we spent that week traveling by taxi and tube and, and doing the tourist things. You know, Westminster, the Tower of London, St. Paul's, the Eye of London, the British Museum, Harrods, you know. There were lots of tourists in London. And it was, it was busy, and it was. It was, it was fun, but uh, having done it, I don't feel the need ever to do it again. Now, the second week was different. The second week we spent in a part of the English countryside called the Cotswolds. It's about an hour and a half north of London. There are no trains that run through the Cotswolds. So we rented a car. Alley drove, on the left-hand side of the road. and. Um, and we found this cottage that I had rented for the week. This little rose-covered stone cottage with a thatched roof, in a tiny little village called Upper Oddington. Um, and it was uh, this is a part of the country where the wool industry thrived back in the days of Oliver Cromwell. So there's still lots of sheep around, and and so we spent the week. Um, exploring the little villages around, villages with names like Stow on the Walled and Borton on the Water, and Lower Slaughter, and uh, Chipping Camden. And, uh, and we also took day trips in the car. We drove to, to see the Roman ruins in Bath. We went to uh, Oxford to see the university. We went to Salisbury and saw that great cathedral that's the subject of Robert Rutherford's book Serum, if you've ever read that. Went to Stonehenge. Um, but the best parts of the week were were the days we just and the time we spent in that little English village. Several times we had dinner in the pub. Most every little English village has a pub, and the pub in Upper Oddington is the Horse and Groom. Horse and Groom is a quaint little place with tiny leaded windows and an enormous stone fireplace, and a sign by the door that asks the walkers to take their muddy boots and shoes off before entering. It turns out there were lots of walkers that that ate at the horse and groom. And some of them apparently stayed upstairs overnight. On about the second day, I noticed that across the narrow road from our cottage was uh, a hedgerow. And in the hedgerow, a gate. And beside the gate, a sign that said, public footpath. And every now and again, two or three people would come through that gate and then walk down and very often go to the horse and groom. Well, one day, I I was up early and I got curious and I went through the gate and started following the public footpath. And it took me, on a beautiful walk, it took me straight to the village that I'd been driving to for groceries. But it took me kind of the back way, across pastures and behind farms. Well, that got my curiosity going and and, uh, so I started to ask around and look around and I discovered that this is a big thing in England, these footpaths. They've been there since the days of King John. It's it's part of ancient English law that every landowner has to maintain a footpath across his property for the use of the public. There are 50,000 miles of public footpaths in the English countryside. And it's a big thing in England to take a walking holiday. Now, these are ancient paths. They don't follow roads. They, it's kind of the direct way between villages. I was so entranced by this idea that the following summer, I went back. This time, I took my, my youngest son and uh, three Samson guys from South Dakota. And um, I found this service that, that would book our accommodations for us. In sixteenth century inns and country houses and b I mean, and bs and would pick up our luggage every morning and take it to the next place, so we weren 't backpacking we weren 't you know um, they carried this stuff all we had to do it was amazing. We got there on the first night, and it 's a sixteenth century inn we stay in our rooms and by the way it 's remarkably reasonable a, a lot cheaper you can you, you can spend a week in the countryside for what you 'd spend in the in a day or two in the city. So a wonderful old room, a huge English breakfast. And i would never had the full English before. It's amazing. You know, this, this enormous, what I've come to think of as a continental breakfast with juices and pastries and cereals and yogurts and all that kind of stuff. And then comes breakfast with eggs and bacon and baked beans and grilled tomatoes. I don't know what that's about. and. Um, yeah. And, uh, and mushrooms and some black pudding I never touched, but, uh, and coffee and tea, but a huge meal. And then, if you want, they'll pack you a plowman's lunch to take with you. And then you head out of the village on this path. And you got all day to get to the next place. And it's usually not far, five, seven, eight miles at the most. and um, you're going across. Feet. It's the most beautiful countryside I'd ever seen, marked by these stone walls and hedgerows. And um, you'd go across fields. You would go through pastures. There's always a gate to get you into a pasture. It might be sheep in there. There might be a sign that says "bull in field." You, you want to be careful on that one. But we went past tumble-down monasteries, that, the ruins of a monastery that was knocked down by Henry VIII. That's just sitting there. We'd stop in in churches and look around, poke around churchyards, and uh, at one one point we came to the gate of a castle, and we had lots of time, so we went in. It was awesome. And then, uh, and then every night we ate and drank in in pubs because every town, every village has at least one pub, and they've got a great new movement <laughs> of local brewing now in England. So the odds are you could get a Uh, a a cask-conditioned English ale that wasn't made any place else. And the food was fantastic. I'm used to English food being terrible. But something wonderful has happened in England. And every, every pub has a chef. Didn't have a bad meal the whole time. The best part was just the conversation. We'd walk and talk all day. One day, a Samson guy from Nottingham, who heard we were there, contacted us and asked if he could meet up. And we spent the day. Walking through England, talking recovery, having a grand time, walking. Just walking. It was uh, so relaxing. And my son and I talk about it a lot now. we both agree, best vacation ever. So I brought it up to Allie. And maybe we could you know, go do that this year. You now The big expense is getting there. But once you're there, it's not bad. And Allie, has, Allie, Allie says she's in. She probably just is not going to do the walking part. <laughs> uh, she's, got, she's got bad knees now. and She can't walk that far or that fast. But she thinks it'd be great if I took a bunch of guys. Uh, we could walk together. And she could take a cab to the next village <laughs> and check out the shops until we show up. <laughs> I don't know whether that'll happen. I don't know if that qualifies as our vacation. We will do a vacation this year. But if I got my choice, that's the one I want. Did you know that walking is the metaphor that the Bible uses more than any other to describe the spiritual life? More than 200 times, the Bible describes the spiritual life using the metaphor of walking I mean shoot it's right from the start right there in Genesis at the dawn of creation humanity there in the paradise of the garden and what happens every day God comes for a walk he comes to go for a walk with them how crazy is that is it because God had to get somewhere No, it's because he had to, he had to discover something. No, he knew everything. I think he got a kick out of showing it to Adam and Eve. And I think there was just something about spending time together, walking along in the cool of the evening that marked that relationship that God had with the first man and the first woman, the way the Bible tells the story. And incidentally, even after they sinned, he still showed up for the walk. By the way, something that I was taught growing up would never happen. You can only walk with God if you're perfect. If there's any sin, you can't possibly walk with God because God can't be around sin. Fortunately, God apparently does not subscribe to that theology. Because even though Adam and Eve had broken the commandment and sinned, at the appointed time, God showed up. The reason the walk didn't happen that day wasn't because God wasn't there. It's because they weren't. It was always his desire to walk with his people. And he kept doing it. Genesis 5, there's that kind of mysterious voice. You know, We're talking about <clears throat> you know, the, the generations of the patriarchs. Genesis 5 uh, verse 24 says this. It talks about Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God. And then he was not, because God took him. One of only two people in all scripture who didn't see death. Apparently you know, Enoch had this great relationship with God. And they walked. I don't know if they walked. I'm not sure how it worked. But he walked with God. And then one day God said, you know what? It's getting late. Why don't you just come to my place? And Enoch didn't have to die. How cool is that? It goes on uh, when Abram comes on the scene. Abram has come from Ur of the Chaldees. He's now living in Haran. And then in Genesis 12, verse 1, God comes to Abraham and says to him, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And Abram gets everything together. And when he arrives, Genesis 13, verse 17. God says this to him, Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. It's yours, I want you to walk through it. Walk. Well, many years later, the children of Abraham, the children of Israel, find their way into captivity, Egypt, and then when it's time to leave, They go on that really, really, really scary walk across the Red Sea, a step at a time, a step at a time. And then, when they reach the Promised Land, they at first didn't go in because they were afraid of giants and they didn't want to cross a river. And God said, OK, well, keep walking. They walked for another 40 years. By the way, this this is it should be a sign to us that That motion does not equal progress. They wandered for 40 years until they came back to the same river facing the same giants. And this time they were ready to go. And uh, this word came from Moses. You shall walk, he says to the children of Israel shortly before he dies. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land and shall prosper. See that consistent use of the metaphor. What follows then is a long line of, of judges and kings. And it's amazing how the Bible will describe them as this one walked with God and this one did not walk with God. This one walked with God, this one did not walk with God. David was one who we know did not walk perfectly. He fell down quite spectacularly. But he still walked with God. And so we have that familiar line from David's most familiar song. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. And later on, God says to Solomon, David's son after David's death, he says, if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as your father David did, I'll give you a long life. And he invites Solomon on the walk. On through the prophets, the prophets continue to use this walking metaphor. So Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2, verse 5. Or later on in verse th- uh, chapter 30. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Jeremiah uses the same metaphor. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And then those familiar lines from Micah. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? You know the lines, don't you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to what? Walk humbly with your God. Jesus was a peripatetic teacher. He didn't have an established classroom. He walked throughout his ministry. When he called his disciples, he said, follow me. And they had to let go of their daily lives and join him on the road. Uh, Sometimes he did some pretty wild walking. Turns out uh, he actually never had to look for a bridge or a boat when they encountered a body of water, (laughs) because he could walk on anything. But but, but, uh, John records these words of Jesus, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul loved this metaphor Walk, and he used it all the time. So we get these phrases throughout the epistles. Walk in newness of life. Walk properly, as in the day. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk as children of light. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Carefully, how you walk. He uses these phrases all the time. My favorite is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then my favorite verse in the entire Bible, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 come to mean so much to me in the last 16 years. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Why this metaphor? What does it imply? Well, I think there are a few things that 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 walking necessarily requires. You stop and think about that. First of all, um, if you're walking, you have not yet arrived. True? This is an important thing, those of us who were raised around perfectionistic Christianity. We can really beat ourselves up with the fact that we've not arrived there yet. We're not there. We've got so far to go. It seems now clearer and clearer to me with every passing year that it's about the journey, not the destination. And it's when I think that I have arrived somewhere that I truly become a danger to myself and others. Uh, Walking is a holistic activity. It requires mind and body. I found, by the way, that uh, in fact studies, I was reading just this last week on a science site, how um, uh, studies have shown that it's easier to learn a language if you learn it while walking. So if you're taking a language program and you get that on your, on your, uh, your, your iPad, your iPhone, and you really, you can increase your l- learning, according to this study, by 30 to 50% if instead of sitting while you do it, you walk. Isn't that remarkable? Walking is, um, it requires initiative. It takes some energy. It takes something to get up off the sofa and go for a walk. Does it not? I think that there is some some truth to the metaphor in our relationship with God. Certainly, it is always all God and God's initiative, but there is a part for us. And finally, walking is incremental. I mean, you can walk fast, but even fast walking is not that fast. True? Right? (laughs) Um, If you're impatient, like I am, And I I tend to be impatient intellectually. I tend to be impatient spiritually. I was certainly very impatient when I got into recovery. I wanted the train. I want the helicopter. I want to get there and I want to get there fast. What I don't want to do is walk. At least I used to not want to do that. I've fallen in love with walking. I walk every day. It's a big part of my recovery and I usually meet at least one guy a day. and, And unless it's raining or three degrees out, we're going to walk while we talk. There's something beautiful about that incremental process. When Allie arrived, Ali and I arrived in this church 16 years ago, I was not a walker. Uh, I wasn't a lot of things. Uh, and. I kept very quiet here for the first three years. Um, we were in deep trouble. We were in deeper trouble even than Allie knew when we arrived. We got here after 16 years in South Florida. Allie didn't know it uh, at the time, but I had a very advanced uh, sexual addiction. I'm not gonna, that's not what this class is about, and I'm not going to go into detail. If you want to know some of that story, you can always look up the my I Am Second video on YouTube or Reed Samson and the Pirate Monks. But I, I, I'll just say this. What had started during adolescence as a, you know, a fairly normal interest in pornography that every kid faces had mushroomed and snowballed over the years. And despite my Christian faith and despite my love for my wife and my love for God, it had gotten completely out of control. It had taken me places I'd never intended to go. So that by the time we got here, I had spent years and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, on pornography and eventually prostitutes. Now, I, it, you may, there are lots of people who think that sex addiction isn't real. That's just an excuse for irresponsible behavior. And if you want to stop, you'll stop. My experience says otherwise. I wanted nothing more than to stop. I hated what I was doing, and I hated myself for doing it. And I did stop. I stopped dozens of times. I may have stopped hundreds of times. I just could never stay stopped. I'd applied every religious solution I could find, and by the time I'd gotten here, I'd run out of hope that anything could ever change, basically. I still loved the music of the gospel, although I was becoming a religious cynic. Allie was the first one to come to this church. I told her about it because I'd heard about it from kind of a pushy lady on an airplane, and uh, and and I knew that if I didn't go, she'd hunt me down and kill me. So I told Allie about it first. Uh, Allie came first and uh, and loved it, which didn't surprise me. Allie always. Loved church. When I came, I came, um, you know, hesitantly, unwillingly, but the part of me still wanted to go. I was still entertaining this hope that maybe somewhere there might be something. And it was when Christ Community Church was still meeting downtown, and we got there late, and we wound up sitting in the choir lock behind Scotty in the, the third or fourth or fifth or seventh <coughs> service. I don't know when it was. It was just <laughs> insane. And uh, And then Scotty began to preach. And there is something about if you're a Christian and you hear the gospel, you know it. And even though he was saying these very dangerous, unqualified things about grace and God's love and mercy, and I knew it was true. couldn't stop the behavior, but I knew it was true. And it wasn't too long after that, that that the crisis hit the house. Allie caught me online looking at porn and was the last straw. And in a conversation that I'll never forget, she said, I'm done. She said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. And it was at that point that I knew I was going to You know, I had maybe, maybe one shot to save my marriage. And so I did something I'd never done before. I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts. I had lots of reasons not to go there. And one very pressing reason to go, I was out of other options. But it's interesting. I had religious objections to 12-step recovery. Uh, I'm kind of a, a religious mongrel, maybe you are too. It, it amazes me when I talk to people around this church with all the different backgrounds we've come from. So I don't know what kind of churches you've been through, but I, when I got here I was kind of a, like a pentapresbyterian or a presbycostal. <laughs> uh, I'd grown up My dad was a Pentecostal preacher. We were charismatics before charismatics are cool, or before the name was even there, right? Uh, But high intensity, um, and you know what? I am grateful for my Christian heritage. I've come to really appreciate my Pentecostal upbringing, and I still from time to time preach in Pentecostal services. Um, But every tradition has its weaknesses, and Pentecostalism is no exception. Among them are these. First of all, we uh, you know we had a big faith in a living God who shows up in miraculous ways to do the impossible. We're big on miracles. We believed in miracles. We prayed. We prayed for physical healing at every service. That was part of the service. And occasionally we saw spectacular things. Occasionally. but we believed in a god who does the miraculous and the miraculous is defined as the instantaneous and every now I mean, we knew that god could heal any disease and we also knew that god could heal or deliver from we're big on spiritual warfare so a lot of times in our understanding it was just it was a battle of, of uh, the powers of evil against the powers of good and you had to cast out the powers of evil and the god would come in and there's truth to all of that but Occasionally, we'd have um, former addicts come through the church and give their testimony. An alcoholic, a former alcoholic, a former drug addict, who had met Jesus and, boom, got saved and delivered, and they're fixed. Which, as I got older, just ticked me off. Because I wanted that. And then he wouldn't give it to me. The other thing is. Pentecostalism comes out of the holiness movement. And holiness was a big part of the way we viewed the Christian life. Really, you know, it's it's our first responsibility to be holy and we defined holiness by a long list of things that real Christians don't do. So, you know, so we didn't smoke, drink, chew, uh, run with those who do, we didn't dance, we didn't go to movies. We we uh didn't play baseball on Sunday, I don't know what that was about, we didn't ride bicycles on Sunday, um, there's lots of these kind of things. We dressed modestly, we spoke modestly, we did not want to be tainted by the world. We made sure that our outward behavior was beyond reproach. Part of our responsibility as a Christian was not to do anything that might be um, bring shame upon the name of Jesus. So anything that might reflect poorly had to be hidden. Right? At least that's the way I understood it as a kid growing up. And uh, I never fully escaped that. That's part of my formative thinking. So In the first 20 years of our marriage, Allie and I went to, we met in a charismatic church, a Pentecostal church. We attended Charismatic churches and Presbyterian churches, and a couple of charismatic Presbyterian churches. As I knew this growing up as a kid, that I didn't quite fit the Pentecostal thing. For 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 one, I I thought too much, Um, and I was really I was I was rebuked for it on some occasions. And the more ecstatic parts of the experience, I couldn't quite I couldn't speak in tongues to save my life. and I also, I thought a lot and I asked a lot of questions, and I quickly out, uh, read through the entire approved list of reading materials, which is pretty short in that little non-denominational denomination that I grew up in. And then I began to read other stuff. And um, and I was always good at school, good enough that I was able to get an academic scholarship to college, much to my father's disappointment. And then. Uh, went from there to a Presbyterian seminary and I found that I loved Presbyterians. I I call myself a Presbyterian today, but every religious tradition has its weaknesses and Presbyterianism is no exception. What appealed to me about uh, Presbyterianism was its intellectual approach to the faith, this doctrinal approach, this idea that it's very, very, very important to get your doctrine straight. It's almost as though we believe that doctrine will save us. Like there's this big SAT exam before you can get into heaven. And you better correctly understand the trinity or the modes of propitiation or you're not going to get in. I kind of like that because I'm good at mastering minutia, getting my head around that stuff. I found I was good at that part of Presbyterianism. I like the intellectual part. It felt, church felt a whole lot more like a classroom. My one point of discomfort with what we're doing right here is we're still in a classroom setup. I wish it were practical for us to do this while walking. I will tell you this, we're recording all of these sessions and we're going to podcast them. And if you want to get like, take a second dip, subscribe to the podcast, put the earphones in, and walk. You'll actually hear more while you're walking. So anyway, we're here. Now we're in a Presbyterian church. I like being a Presbyterian. I tried to outthink my addiction. When I was kind of in Pentecostal mode, I, I went for the spiritual solution. I wanted to be delivered. I wanted to have this experience with God. I wanted to, want to make another uh, a, a commitment, a more firmer, more fervent uh, commitment to God. And those never worked against my addiction. They would work for a while, but eventually I'd be overwhelmed. When I was in Presbyterian mode, I tried to outthink my addiction, tried to figure out why was it that I would do these things. Because I thought if I just understood it, and I could get my thinking straight, then I would stop doing it. It's a very appealing proposition. It really is fundamental to one whole school of of counseling, you know, this, this analytic, you know, school that says if you, it's just through analysis. If you can understand it, then you can live right. I'll tell you what. I found myself doing irrational things for apparently non-rational reasons. And I could never solve the problem by rational means. Even if it came clear, it would never stay clear for very long. So I'm down. I'm out of options in the church. I don't have the money to go to another therapist. I don't have any money now. We're out of money. I don't want to come to the church. I'm suspicious of church anyway. I don't trust pastors. I've been a pastor. Plus, we're new here. I don't want to get branded. I don't want anybody to know I'm a sex addict. (laughs) Come on. That's never going to happen. So I go to this 12-step anonymous meeting. And I heard my father's voice in my ear as I went. My father preached against 12-step recovery his entire ministry. He was offended by the thought that any Christian would call himself an alcoholic. I've heard my father say many times, if you are a Christian, you are not an alcoholic. You were an alcoholic, but you're now a Christian, and all things are made new. And my fi- and, then, so, and then there was this Presbyterian part of me that knew that these people didn't have their theology straight. <laughs> their doctrine was a mess. It's like, holy smokes, they can't even possibly. They can't be Christians, right? So here it is. I'm very comfortable in the church on Sunday morning, but now I'm going to the basement of the church at night in the middle of the week. With a bunch of outsiders. My dad knew that people in AA weren't Christians because afterwards they'd be smoking. (laughs) Right? So, uh, I mean, that was the final proof. So, here are these. So, but I've got no other options. And um, so I, I go to the meeting of the losers. And I feel like I'm kind of hiding from God to go there. It's like, I'm sorry, God, I gave you every shot. I'll go here. Maybe they can help. And I get in that room, and God's there, and he's not supposed to be there, but he is. It's a bunch of Samaritans, right? they worshiping in the wrong place. They're not calling them by the right name. It's all this higher power stuff. And yet, I mean, I've said this many, many times. I mean, I, 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 it astonished me. I, I remember coming out of that room just so furious, furious, that I'd spent a lifetime in church and had never been in a room that safe before. I'd never heard such honesty, felt such humility such kindness never heard jesus in the way i heard him there and they didn't tell me i had to change they just invited me back and when it was over this one guy said if you want i'll walk with you a while if you want well, you know what? I, I didn't take him up on it because I didn't want to walk. I wanted to be fixed. That's why I went to the meeting. See? And it was such a profound spiritual experience uh, that I, for a while I genuinely thought I was fixed. It, it had happened before. I didn't recognize that it was the same thing all over again. But I kind of had this spiritual high, and the compulsion was gone. And, and I was you know desperate to change anyway. And so I, had, I entered what uh, the addicts call the pink cloud. And so I had this period that lasted for two or three weeks, where I actually actually thought I was cured. It was that old you know Pentecostal solution. But then it faded. And I found myself uh, relapsing. So then I went back to the room and decided I went back as a Presbyterian, and I decided to master the material. These were people, a lot of these people had years of sexual sobriety. And I I didn't just go to to meetings for sex addicts. I also started going to any 12-step meeting I could find. So I was going to alcoholic meetings. And um, these people told stories of profound life change. And uh, and by the way, uh, the groups were not perfect any more than, if you read the New Testament, you understand that the first century church was not perfect. It had its ego problems. It had all kinds of problems. These groups were not perfect, but that didn't change the fact that that somehow God was showing up in the middle of all this mess. And I figured that they, they must have found the secret formula, the silver bullet, that last piece of the puzzle that I'd been looking for for 40 years. And so they had some books, and I read all the books, man. I'm good at that. And um, I learned the lingo, and it didn't take me very long. I'm a quick study. Years ago, I mean, at one point, I, you know, that's a different story. Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, and I started then started talking the walk, having not moved. You know what I mean? And Have you ever had a conversation with somebody like that I mean, here in the Bible Belt, somebody who grew up around Southern churchianity, who knows all the lingo, and maybe took a walk down an aisle 40 years ago? And when it's appropriate, when the conversation turns to God or Christian, they start dropping all the buzzwords. and they, you know, it's just But it's very, very clear that they don't know what they're talking about. I think it was pretty clear to the other people in the room that I didn't know what I was talking about. I just knew the words. And at one point, one of the guys in the room said, afterwards, he said, Nate, he said, you're trying to think your way to right acting. Why don't you let us show you how to act your way to right thinking? He said, this is a program of action. And you haven't done anything yet. There's stuff to do. And then he dropped this verse on me. He said, because faith without works is dead. Uh, that, by the way, is a verse that comes up quite often in 12-step literature. It's a big part. It comes, it's that Christian heritage that 12-step recovery comes out of. It's deeply rooted, not just in the life of Jesus, but also in the book of James. Um, and that, once again, by the way, offended me. Uh, It offended that Presbyterian reformed part of me. Do you know that um, Martin Luther wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible except James? He hated James. He cut James out of his Bible. He called it an epistle of straw. And you know why he hated it? He hated it because of that verse. Let me read you this section from James chapter 2. Starting in verse 14. What does it profit my brother... I'm reading from the New King James Version. I grew up with King James and so I also I kind of like the meter of it. You know I can hear it. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them depart in peace and be warmed and be filled but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body what does it profit thus also faith by itself it if it does not have works is dead but someone will say you have faith and I have works well show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then, that a man is justified, this is scary you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out together another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I've come to believe in the last 16 years that as great a man as Martin Luther was, he was wrong on this point. I've come to believe that James belongs in the Bible. It's there for a reason. It's every bit as inspired as any other part of Scripture. And it's there largely for the sake of us proto-Presbyterians to prevent us from falling into the delusion that faith is primarily an intellectual thing. It's there to push us into actually getting up off the sofa and going for a walk. Uh, Over the course of the next sessions, I'll tell you, I I got in 12-step recovery. what, What an experience it was for me to go through that at the same time that I'm hearing the gospel here. It was phenomenal. My 12-step recovery experience opened doors and windows on the gospel I'd never seen. And at the same time, that clear declaration of the gracious gospel of this merciful, forgiving God made it possible for me to believe that this God they're describing is actually Him. And He's at work. It enriched... So, the, so my, my, my church time on Sunday morning enriched my church time in the basement throughout the week and vice versa. I want to, I, now I got a lot of very practical coaching in the years that followed. Stuff I'd never gotten before in my life growing up in church. I got a lot of preaching, got a lot of teaching, hadn't gotten a lot of practical coaching. I learned some valuable lessons and I, my intention in the weeks that follow is to pass some of those along to you. So that you can Use them yourself, where you need them, share them with others who ha- are, are being overwhelmed by something they can't understand. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I want this uh, a big part of uh, and we went on by the way a few years later to start the Samson Society, which is not a 12 step program and is not for addicts or sex addicts, although it carries that same spirit of 12step recovery it's a it's a mutual aid society for Christian men. It's become a vital part of my life. And there are now, it started here in this church, and there are 400 groups around the country already in 10 years. A big part of Samson uh, life is not just the meeting, but the meeting after the meeting. We we'll always go someplace and hang after the meeting and talk. And then there are these phone conversations throughout the week that are just a huge part. It's about building relationships. I want this class, as much as is possible within the confines of this structure, to take on some of that conversational tone. And one of the ways we're going to accomplish this is I'm going to ask you, please, for feedback, for comment, for question, um, because I want to make sure that we're exploring these topics fully, and that that, uh, as much as possible, we're traveling together. I don't get too far ahead. You don't get lost in the woods somewhere. So, if you're here in the room, the way to do that, or there are a couple ways to do that. One way is there was a three by five card should have been on your on your uh, chair. If you have got a comment or a question while you've got it in your mind, write it down and drop it in that wooden uh, bowl on the way out. You can do it anonymous, anonymously if you like, or you can put your name on it. Doesn't matter. If uh, if you're listening to this class via podcast, or if a comment or a question comes to mind later. There are other ways you can get it to us. You could, you could email. Uh, just send an email to walkinglessons at gmail.com. You'll get that. You can join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. You can put something right on the wall, or you can send a message. If you're a Twitter type, uh, <laughs> and you can condense your thought into 140 characters or less, you can send it to a uh, hashtag Lessons, and we'll get it. And then uh, we'll begin. Next week's class and every week following, uh, Bernie will uh, compile and categorize and uh, uh, w- work those lessons over. And then, and then we'll converse around those subjects before we go on to the next one. Now next week, uh, we're going to start the journey. Uh, we're going to come to the river, the big river that everybody's got to cross before recovery can start. So next week, we'll be talking about denial denial. I hope to see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. See you next week.